If you've got a Bible, could you turn with me to uh, Psalm 46? Psalm 46. This is a song, an ancient song that uh, a few of us at Strandtown have found really helpful over these past few years to uh, help us find comfort in a, in a confusing world. Psalm 46. For the director of music of the songs of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. The Lord is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy place where the Most High dwells, God is within her, she will not fall. God will help her at break of day, nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolation he has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth, he breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let me pray for us before we look at God's word together. Father, we thank you so much that you are a a speaking God, that you speak through your word, by your spirit. We pray, please, that we might hear your voice this morning, that we might be encouraged, that we might be challenged, that we might be spurred on to love you more and to serve you with greater devotion. So please, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, well, yesterday, if you were watching any of the coronation, you couldn't help but spot uh, a few of the military personnel floating around. Uh, there was lots and lots of them in all their fancy, lots of their fancy uniforms. But I wonder, did you know uh, what the standard issue was for soldiers back in World War I? What did they receive in their essentials kit? Uh, well, they received a uniform, uh, they received a helmet, Uh, They received a backpack full of rations. They received a pair of boots. Uh, They received a gun and ammo and a a full Bible, actually. They received a full Bible. Um, The the senior command in those days thought it was absolutely essential that these young men heading off to war, heading off to the chaos of war, heading off to the misery of life in the trenches, heading off to... Uh, the, the real prospect of, of death, it was just obvious to them that they would need to find comfort and encouragement uh, from the God who speaks through the Bible. It was just obvious to them. And it was obvious for uh, about a hundred years that that was essential kit for, for soldiers. Uh, one such soldier who headed off to war 
uh, was uh, a young man called George Vinyl. Uh, he was from Sussex and Eastbourne. Uh, he was uh, sent off to the Western Front. Uh, and one day, his bunker was hit by heavy enemy fire. And he dived for cover with his friend. And when the skirmish came to an end, he reached into his top pocket and pulled out his Bible. And stuck in his Bible was a bullet that had saved his, the Bible had actually saved his life. Um, I don't really know, to be honest, how paper and leather stopped a bullet, but it did. And later on that summer in July uh, 1915, he wrote to his parents and described how, uh, the situation, how he survived. And in that letter, he talks about how the bullet came to a stop in Isaiah 40, 49, sorry, Isaiah 49. You can see it in the picture. And as he looked at his Bible at Isaiah 49, four words popped out of the page to him. And the four words were Isaiah 49, verse 8. I will preserve thee. I will preserve thee. Uh, and after, after he came home from war, his family all testified that he was a transformed man. And often people came home from war and they were transformed for the worse, but he was transformed for the better. He was transformed from a mere church-going man to becoming a passionate Christian, someone who passionately believed that the Bible was something that could transform people, uh, that it was something that could ultimately protect you, could ultimately provide for you all that you needed. Now, I wonder if you were in charge today, uh, if you were in control, uh, would you send soldiers off with a Bible or not? Not as part of their personal protective armor. Uh, Kevlar is a much better job than, than, than leather and paper, but for their sanity, for their sanity to know that there is a real God out there and to remind them or maybe to, to teach them for the first time that he can ultimately provide for them, that he will ultimately protect them, that he will ultimately save them. Well, if you were to ask that same question, do you think soldiers, those under pressure, those under threat of danger, need the words of encouragement of the scriptures? If you were to ask that question to the sons of Korah, then their answer would be absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. In many ways, that's why they've written this song and published this song because they know that people under pressure need to be reminded that God is the great provider and protector, that he's the only one that can preserve us. And that's what you've got uh, in this song. And in many ways, the, the, the big idea of this song is that when we're confronted with chaos, hostility, and violence, our confidence need not be shaken because our God is a strong deliverer. If you forget everything else I say, remember that. Okay, that's the big idea uh, of this song. Now, in this song, we're told there's a little heading uh, that's part of the original text there, uh, and we're told who wrote it, and we're even told what tune you, sh you should sing this song to. But frustratingly, we're not told what circumstances prompted uh, the writers to compose the song. Now, as we read through, we can maybe read between the lines a little bit. And we can see that the nation of Israel is under pressure, surrounded by their enemies. 
Uh, and so it may be, it may be that this song was written uh, when the, the emperor Sennacherib and his Assyrian horde, the great army, surrounded the city of Jerusalem uh, in 701 BC. Uh, they were the superpower of the day. They were at their doorstep. Everything looked like it was impending doom was hanging over them. And yet the writer can say this. He can say this. God is our strength and refuge and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. He refuses to be paralyzed by fear. He refuses to be paralyzed by fear. Now, it's unlikely, I think, maybe you disagree, but I think it's unlikely that Belfast is going to be surrounded by an enemy army any time in the next year. I don't, I don't really think that's something we need to worry about. And yet, the experience that uh, these original readers are having uh, actually is something we can all empathize with, isn't it? We all know that there's the real danger uh, that in the not-too-distant future we may experience the, the horror of bereavement, that you might experience trouble at work, that you might experience the fear of job loss or financial pressure, that you might experience uh, trouble, turmoil, chaos in your family. And this song speaks directly to all of us, I think, uh, and gives us three brilliant reasons why we need not fear. We need not fear. First reason then is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God will preserve you through calamity. God will preserve you through calamity. Uh, he writes this, verse 2, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam the mountains, and the mountains quake with their surging. Unlike the the the... The British Navy, uh, rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves and all that. The Jewish people were not a seagoing people. They were not a seafaring people at all. Uh, in fact, even at the height of their power under King Solomon, when he um, built a merchant navy to, to travel the Mediterranean, uh, he couldn't get Jewish people to, to man the ships. Uh, they had to bring in uh, other people's Sidonians from up the coast a bit, uh, to man the ships for them, because for a Jew, uh, the sea is connected. It's, it's, it's restless, it's uncontrollable, it's dangerous, it's the realm of sea monsters. Uh, and so Jews feared the sea. Uh, and so in Jewish literature, the sea becomes a, a symbol for danger, chaos, and evil. And so what the writer is simply saying here is there's something that you take for granted, something solid that you assumed was solid and stable. The earth and the mountains have now collapsed into chaos. That's how it feels for them. That's how it feels for them. Um, I'm not sure this is working anymore. Let me tell you about a, a crisis in Donegal. Um, I'm not sure it's made much, many headlines up here, but uh, in Donegal, um, over the past 
10 years or so, over 8,000, well, between six and 8,000 houses have been built. Um, and it's been referred to as the mica crisis, the mica scandal. Anyone heard about that? No? Hugh, I'm sure Hugh's heard about it. Uh, a number of defective bricks were produced by one quarry uh, in Donegal and sent out uh, and were used to build all these houses all over the county. Uh, the problem with these bricks is they were defective. Um, they contained more than the allowed amount of what's called, uh, let me just get this right, Muscovite mica. I hadn't heard of that substance before. But it turns out that this, this substance sucks in moisture. And when it sucks in moisture and then dries, it crumbles. And that means that these bricks are literally crumbling becoming like flour in the side of your house, which means houses are beginning to crumble and fall apart. So just imagine for a moment, try to put yourself in the shoes of someone from Donegal at the moment, where you move in, you get your new house, you've finally got it all decorated the way that you like, and then suddenly you see this big crack running up your, your living room wall, and then another one, and then another one, and then another one. So much so that you begin to worry and you get a surveyor in to have a look at it more closely. Only to get the devastating news that you too are one of these victims. That your house, your finances, your future is potentially just falling apart. Something you thought was stable and secure has now collapsed into chaos around you. And I think many of us uh, have had uh, similar experiences. It might not be your house. In fact, I hope your house is, is very stable uh, this, this morning. Uh, but we've all had the experience of something we thought was stable and secure collapsing into chaos. Perhaps it's your job that you thought was stable, only to be told there's a new round of redundancies. Uh, or perhaps it's your health. And you, thought you, were, you thought you were in good health, uh, you go for some unrelated thing, uh, doctor takes a test and the results are devastating. Or perhaps it's uh, a relationship. Uh, you thought this relationship was stable and secure and it collapses around you into chaos and broken heartedness. Well, and that experience of the thing, the foundation, the thing that we thought was stable collapsing around us. And yet the writer tells us that even when we feel anxious and overwhelmed, we will not fear though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Now, how can he be so confident? How can he be confident when life feels like it's falling apart? Well, verse 1, the Lord is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help. In time of trouble, he can be confident because God, he knows God is with him in the midst of the calamity. In fact, he says it twice then again at the, in verse 7 and in verse 11. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The writer's not just saying, don't worry, God is near you. Maybe some of you have been in this situation where the, your internet or your heating system begins to, 
to go faulty or break down entirely. And you call up the supplier and they tell them, don't worry, we'll have an engineer with you in the morning, perhaps between 8 and 11. Uh, and you know what normally happens. You're sitting there at lunchtime and no one has shown up. Uh, you, you think, I'll be especially patient, and you wait right on to 2 o'clock to call the supplier again, and the operator tells you, don't worry, the engineer is near you. You know, they're just, just you're, you're next, they'll be, they'll be with you in the hour, at which point you sort of translate that in your brain, your brain and think, well, they'll be with us before midnight tonight, maybe. It's not good enough that the engineer is near you, that's no help. The writer's not just saying God is near you. He's saying that God is with you. God is with you. He will. He's always with you. He's closer to you than your shadow. Right at your elbow to help you. As the writer looks up, he can be confident of that because he can see the temple. He can see the temple in front of him. The city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God had promised uh, that he would be, God had promised that he would be with his people, that he would dwell with them in the temple in Jerusalem. And so as they, as he looks up, he knows that God will be with his people in order to bless them, and he will not let his city that bears his name be overrun. They can be confident of that. But as a New Testament believer, we can be even more confident we can be even more confident. Uh, the New Testament promises that when someone becomes a Christian, when they admit their guilt uh, and that they put, they put their trust in the Lord Jesus, they believe that he really is the Son of God who died for me, and they cry out to him for mercy, we receive two gifts immediately. One is the gift of full forgiveness, and the second is the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Which means Paul can say, I think we're too far, sorry. Which means Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? We have an even greater privilege than the, these sons of Korah who looked at a physical building and said, There, God is with us there. We have an even greater privilege. God has promised to be with us in our hearts. We are never without him. He will never leave us or forsake us. And that should bring us real comfort. It should bring us real comfort. Um, I came across this lady, uh, Sheila Cassidy. I read her, a little bit of her book. Now, she was a doctor uh, in... Um, in Chile under General Pinochet back in the 70s. Um, she was doing her best to, to serve poor and vulnerable people there. And one of her patients, it turned out, was uh, a dissident on the run. She treated him um, and let him go. Uh, it was discovered what she had done, uh, and she was arrested for assisting an enemy of the state. She was beaten. She was tortured and she was thrown in solitary confinement. And yet, in the midst of solitary confinement, she could say this, through it all, I was strengthened and sustained by an enormous sense of the presence of God. That sounds quite a pious thing to say, but to be honest, I have talked to so many 
of our folks in Strandtown who have gone through all sorts of troubles, all sorts of devastating uh, illnesses, all sorts of devastating family problems. And right at the moment when they felt hopeless and helpless, they testify to feeling a tremendous sense of strength and comfort that comes from a real sense of God being with them and a real sense of his love for them. The problem didn't evaporate, but they were strengthened to endure it by a sense of God's presence. God will, don't be afraid, God will preserve you through calamity. That's the first thing the writer's saying. The second thing, uh, more briefly, the writer's saying is, be glad the Lord will preserve you despite adversity. In the first uh, verses, uh, he talks about the nature roaring and mountains falling. And then in verses uh, 4 to 7, he talks about nations roaring and kingdoms falling. I think he's talking about the same situation about his people been surrounded by enemies. He's describing it first in a poetic way in verses 1 to 3, and now he's describing it in a more factual way uh, in verses 4 to 7. The city is surrounded by enemies. And the first thing enemy forces would do in the ancient Near East uh, when they surrounded a city is that they would try to cut off the water supply. You can survive for a long time without any food, but you'll only survive a matter of days without any water. And yet these people, or the sons of Korah, testify to the fact that, uh, verse 4, that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. the The psalmist is talking there about the Gihon Spring. It was a spring just outside the walls of the city. But back uh, under the reign of King Hezekiah, he dug a tunnel, uh, a tunnel from that spring right through under the city wall into what was called the king's pool. And so he protected that water supply from enemy attack. You can go and you can literally walk in it today. Um, And so these people were saying, even in the midst of their uh, been surrounded by enemies and adversaries, they can be glad because they have the most vital resource uh, that they need that God has wonderfully supplied. Now, how is that in any way relevant to you and I today in the 21st century in Northern Ireland? I think it's incredibly relevant for two reasons. Number one is that we too have an enemy. We too have an enemy. Um, We're told in the New Testament that... uh, we have an enemy who is less visible but just as hostile and just as dangerous as those enemy forces back uh, in the 6th century BC. We're told by uh, St. Peter uh, to be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Some of you might be thinking at this point, oh, come on, can't really talk about the devil and demons. That's, that's the stuff of horror movies and Halloween. You don't really expect us to believe any of that stuff anymore. And yet, the clear testimony of all of the biblical writers is that the devil is real. He is a real spiritual being who is working hard 
to stop people putting their trust in Jesus and coming into his kingdom and working hard to stop believers being effective in sharing the good news about Jesus with others. C.S. Lewis put it really well. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive uh, and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and heal the materialist or a magician with the same delight. We're not to obsess over the evil that is uh, in this world, uh, and yet we're not to be naive. We're not to be naive. Standing behind every temptation we feel to give in to what is wrong uh, or to give up following the Lord Jesus at all, standing behind, ultimately standing behind those temptations is the evil one. And we are called to resist. We're called to resist. How is it possible if it's me against the devil, how on earth could I win that fight? And that's the second reason why this is all relevant to us, because our enemy's real. But second, because we too have been given a wonderful resource, a wonderful resource. The Lord Jesus in, in John chapter 7 said this, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, uh, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And then he goes on to explain what's that living water that we have. By this, he meant the Spirit. We too have been given the Holy Spirit to help us resist and to help us fight and to help us survive and to thrive. There's a story of a little Indian girl. Um, She shouted, Daddy, Daddy, one day from her bedroom. And her dad runs in and sees this little girl with her head on a or with her foot on the head of a cobra. And the cobra's frantically wriggling, and it looks like he's going to escape. Uh, And what her dad does without thinking is puts his foot on top of her foot. And after a very short time, the, the cobra is dead. She needed his help to fight, but with his help, she was wonderfully victorious. And it's the same for us. It's the same for us. It feels like we're facing a deadly enemy, but we have all the resources we need. We have the help of the Holy Spirit. So first, we do not be afraid. God will preserve you through calamity. Second, be glad. The Lord will preserve you despite adversity. And lastly, and far too briefly, be confident. God will preserve you for eternity. God will preserve you for eternity. Uh, The the scene changes again uh, in verses 8 and 9. And he talks about God doing two things. One, bringing judgment and bringing peace. And it's not clear if you just read verses 8 and 9 what he's talking about. Is he talking about something that's happened in the past? Or is he talking about something that will happen in the future? And it's not entirely clear what he's referring to. Uh, Verse 10, I think, makes it clear for us. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. He's talking about a future victory that God will give uh, and the benefits of which will last for eternity. What's he talking about? Well, with our New Testament glasses on, we know that actually he's talking about the return of the Lord Jesus who will one day 
judge his enemies, and bring peace for all his people. One day, all those who reject the Lord Jesus, all those uh, who mock him in the media, all those who reject him in the university classroom and lecture theater, all those who laugh at him in the comedy club, uh, all those who reject him uh, and follow made-up religions, all who reject and despise the Lord Jesus will one day face his punishment. And yet, wonderfully, all who put their trust in him will experience the joy, the peace, the eternal security in his new creation. But that means, verse 10, you might need to read it in a different way than you've often read it. Okay, just glance down to verse 10. Verse 10 is one of those verses that you'll see on a fridge magnet or an embroidered picture uh, in a kitchen somewhere. Be still and know that I am God. And we often read that as a wonderful invitation for our own devotions uh, and contemplative prayer. But I don't think that's the way we should read verse 10 at all. I think verse 10 is there as a stinging rebuke. A stinging rebuke. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted. That's it. Enough. You've had long enough to exalt yourself and see yourself as God in this world. That's now over. I am the living God. All will bow before me. It's a stinging rebuke. But for all who do that now, acknowledge the Lord Jesus as the true and living God now, before that day, well, wonderfully, we will have peace that lasts forever. Peace that lasts forever. And that means that no matter what we're facing, no matter how painful, no matter how difficult, it's only for a little while. Uh, Francis Chan has this uh, he's a famous preacher in the States. He has this brilliant illustration he did at a conference one time where he had this huge length of rope that stretched across this huge stage and then was wound up at the other side. And then he got, at the other side of the rope, he had a little sliver of red tape. And he said, that's your life now. And that's your life for eternity. It's nothing in comparison to what God has in store for you. Keep going. Keep going. Keep trusting him. Keep being faithful to him. Do not be afraid. God will preserve you despite calamity. Be glad. God will preserve you despite adversity. And wonderfully, be confident God will preserve you for eternity. The Lord is our strength and refuge and ever-present help in time of trouble. We need not be afraid. In fact, we should be glad and we should be confident no matter what you're facing. Let me pray for us. Father, we want to thank you for the wonderful encouragement, the wonderful reassurance we read in this story. Father, I don't know what everyone is going through this morning. Perhaps many are in this room who feel that their world is falling apart. Father, I pray please that they would be comforted by your words. For the rest of us whose life seems to be 
going along quite nicely at the moment. Father, we know that there's trouble around the corner inevitably for us all. And Father, we meet, we, as we hear these words now, please help us store them away for that day of trouble in the future. And for those who are in this room who don't yet know you, who haven't yet put their trust in your Son as their Savior, Father, we pray, please, that you would help them respond today so that they might meet that final day with great confidence. Father, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.